Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. The story of how the world's oldest living language adapted to the modern world is one that carries within it the story of how language itself shapes our vision and our thinking, how the quest for progress is often stronger than the pull of history, and how a language can literally be reinvented, iterated, and adapted, and at the same time carry a country along with it. That's the story of the evolution of the Chinese language that my guest Jing Su tells in her new book, Kingdom of Characters. Jing Su is the John M. Schiff Professor of East Asian Languages and Literatures and Comparative Literature at Yale, where she is also the chair of the Council on East Asian Studies. She specializes in Chinese literature, history, and culture from the 19th century to the present, and it is my pleasure to welcome him here, welcome her here to talk about her new book, Kingdom of Characters, The Language Revolution That Made China Modern. Jing, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. Great to be here. Well, it's a delight to have you. First of all, take us back about a century and talk a little bit about the state of the Chinese language a century ago. What was that language like? You know, a century ago, the written Chinese language was only known by the elite, so in the hands of the few. Literacy was very low, not widespread at all, and most of the countries spoke their own dialects. So spoken Chinese was also not unified. So it's really at this time where the China had to think about what it meant to modernize, to become part of the world of nations, to westernize, and to make its language usable and serviceable in this new era. And as that program and that idea got talked about, talk a little bit about what the pushback to that was, because like anything else, there are always traditionalists that don't want to change those things. You got that. And that's absolutely true of Chinese history, every step along the way, right? Change versus stasis. And there were those who actually was, were already quite radical in the late 19th, early 20th century, who said, you know, why don't we just do away with the Chinese script and basically westernize and alphabetize our written language? But then the pushback was, but this is at the very core of our culture, the very core of our civilization. You know, Chinese writing Chinese characters, not just a tool for communication. It has a very deep foundation in Chinese philosophy, um, perception of how the world is ordered, um, even moral precepts. Talk a little bit more about that, because language we know shapes not only a culture, but it does, to your point, shapes thinking, shapes perception. And with Chinese characters, it seems that that was even more true. It's really true because in the sense that characters are generally thought to be pictographic, right? Like we, I think the, the, what the, most people think about child Chinese characters are more like pictures. Well, in fact, only 3% are really kind of properly pictographic in the sense of representing the objects as they seem. But very early on, there was a correlation. So the story that I always like is a story about the origin of Chinese writing, which is a myth about a four-eyed sage who looked up into the sky and saw the cloud formation, the patterns of the clouds, and looked down and noticed the tracks left by birds and sort of the, the contours of, of plants and, and stems of, you know, their stems and leaves. And through that, he intuited that there's a certain pattern in the cosmos so he started constructing characters one by one. Now, the reason I like this myth is not because of the exotic aspect of it, but because 
in recent history, you know, with the development of neuroscience, there's been a field called, you know, the, the science of reading, where they study how um, written forms of language influence or shape how quickly we can read or acquire literacy. And not knowing this, this myth in, you know, at the center of Chinese writing or the philosophy or the history of it, they discovered that, you know, writing is only 5,000 years old. So evolutionary speaking, our brain could not have adapted fast enough for capacity just for reading. So it turns out what they found, neuroscientists found, was that our recognition, our ability to recognize writing is actually based on much earlier, more primitive infrastructure of visualizing how we see the nature or the world of nature around us. And it seems that that, that argument would have been an additional argument for the traditionalists to really make the case that the view of the world, that a vision of the world was so much tied to the original language. Absolutely. You know what? In the 17th century, when the Europeans first encountered Chinese language, they thought the same thing. They actually, there's an English um, Englishman who actually thought that Chinese was closer to the mother tongue of God because it represented things as they were. Right, did not kind of detract or dis- distract you with um, unnecessary uh, uh, barrier like the alphabet. But you know that perception of Chinese language also went through a few ups and downs. Where you know by 19th century, on the eve of the 20th, you know Chinese seemed backwards and primitive for the very same reason. For the Chinese traditionalists, though, it's true that for them it was absolutely imperative that they keep the writing system as it was as much as possible. So to tell you the truth, it's actually kind of a miracle that Chinese writing system could have survived the 20th century, right? It's difficult, it's complicated, it takes a lot of time to learn, but nonetheless, it acquired these different dimensions and different ways of you know, integrating with modern technology that made it survive. And there was an attempt, or the attempts really began in earnest in, I guess, the 50s, mid-20th century, to try and make substantial changes, particularly as the communists took over. Talk about that. Well, the reason that was important was because communist China, founded in 1949, was really the first time in the 20th century of a lot of wars and a lot of revolutions, especially in the early part, first time that China was unified. So, you know, ultimately to push through language reform, to standardize technology, disseminate it broadly and widely to a population across vast lands and export it abroad to share with human, uh, uh, to share with foreigners for internationalization. All this took a strong state's hand, which is what the communists did. Now, the work did not start with them. For instance, their attempt to simplify Chinese script, that was actually discussed as early as 1909. And even romanizing the Chinese script, representing Chinese and Roman letters, that was also already underway in the 1920s. But it's really under the communist, the, you know, communist China that important language reforms were implemented and, um, and executed. So that was absolutely critical to how we think of, for instance, Beijing, you know, the Beijing Olympics. You know, once upon a time, we only recognized Beijing as Peking, as in what we saw in a Chinese menu, like Peking duck. <laughs> but that was not a thing the Chinese liked or made much sense to them because it was a romanization system um, that was put together by Westerners. See, the Westerners were the first alphabetized because they were the ones who needed to render Chinese into Roman letters as cheat sheets so that they can actually learn how to pronounce Chinese. 
So this, their early attempts kind of filter through and then sort of made Chinese look at their writings as, wow, like look at how, how odd that they can represent our language with 26 letters, which is not something that a Chinese has thought of. It does make one wonder, though, that without the firm hand of the state, as you talk about, how much of this progress would have been made at all? Well, I think the thing with all countries, right? We know how the French are about how protective they are about their language. We know how English, you know, how the English are about their their standard language too. I mean, English is kind of the global lingua franca for the, the same period as British imperialism and American dominance. So, I think nationalism actually had a very strong hand to play in pushing different language systems into codifying themselves into a standard language. Talk about the role that, that China's push towards modernity played in, in the evolution of this language, in wanting to be a world player in terms of trade and technology, etc. You know, the two are one and the same. It's really the language, you know, the story about the Chinese language is the story about China's push for global power, for modernization. And if you think about it, that was really the door that would open all doors, right? If you can't get Chinese into a global technology, if you can't get Chinese into telegraph, typewriters, computers, where would you be as a nation? You know, one of the hallmarks of the world we live in is the interconnectedness. And that is not possible without digital and cyber power. And, you know, if you think about how you even get Chinese into a computer, so give it a digital presence. I mean, that took extraordinary amount of work. Um, and so I think each of these technological leaps were absolutely critical. If China had missed any of it, it would have lagged behind the world, which is why in now, as we talk now, the biggest push is in AI, right? Have machine translate languages for you to basically turn mountains of written Chinese records into data so that you can use it in cyberspace um, to to launch satellites and so on and so forth, just about anything you can think of that is absolutely central to our life today. And of course, the other part of it is the internal part of it in the country, as you talk about, and how it really changed who was educated in the country and, and, and eliminated only the elites being educated and really widened the population being literate. Yes, I think that's actually, that's actually critical as well. And I think a lot of literacy, global literacy, I mean, literacy rates in the world, I think really shot up in the 20th century because of technology and broad dissemination. I think that's actually true. But at the same time, it is also a process of standardization, right? And one of the reasons that was very important for Chinese to, first of all, unify their own dialects into at least a unified spoken tongue that was absolutely critical. That was the first thing they had to do around the turn of the 20th century, was to come up with a standard national language. How difficult was that? Oh, it was very hard. And I can tell you, it was actually quite dramatic as well. Um, in the opening chapter, where one of my favorite characters is this wanted fugitive who, drew, who was um, dressed himself up as a Buddhist monk as cover. You know, he came back to China at great risk of his life. Um, to modernize Chinese with a proposal for Mandarin script, a Mandarin, sorry, Mandarin phonetic alphabet. And he was a Mandarin speaker. So, of course, he wanted Mandarin to become the basis and the blueprint of the national language. So, in 1912, he was at this conference and he made sure that got pushed through and he bullied his opponents. He kind of 
you know, outmaneuver them by calling a separate meeting and, you know, sort of manipulated the votes a little bit. You know, he actually got into a fist fight with someone from the South because they did not speak his dialect. So, you know, it took a lot of this type of struggle, even within China, to figure out, okay, who's going to be the national representative? And you can imagine from there on, every step of the way to push China through each of these thresholds took a lot of discussion, um, debate, um, quashing of your opponents. And these are the kind of dynamic and intrigues and the, the stories that kind of animate the book. How did outside influence changes in other languages, like the Japanese language, for example, and the modernization of it, how did that influence what was happening in China? Well, China, well, Japan is a very interesting story because Japan used Chinese character writing system, right, as one of its three systems, writing systems. And Japan actually embraced alphabetization with even greater enthusiasm than China and slightly earlier. So when Japan did that, I mean, they're the ones who thought first that Chinese characters are not going to survive the modern age. It's cumbersome and we want to westernize ourselves. So we should embrace and they did embrace romanization and reduce the number of characters they use in their writing. This is a gradual uh, process um, of decrease throughout the 20th century. And in terms of language, that's because Japan accessed Western languages first, they also translated a lot of Western terminology. And so for China, this was kind of seen as a shortcut, but not really the end game of how Chinese were modernized. So they did re-import some of these characters that Japan used to translate Western language back to the Chinese lexicon. Talk a little bit about this process that reduced literally tens of thousands of characters to just a couple of thousand, really. Well, the, the, it's true. Well, I should say it's the, the tens of thousands of characters are still there. But of that number, about two to 3,000 was originally simplified. And, you know, that took a lot of debate. So under the communist, under communist China, as you mentioned, this is where this actually happened, character simplification campaign. And they actually worked extremely hard at this. They pulled opinions from across the country. They invited different stakeholders of different regional dialects to come in. Um, they, they send out, you know, actually calls for the average Chinese citizen to weigh in on the subject. And so, and they responded with these these you know, proposals. So there was a small committee called the Pinyin Committee in the 1950s who worked day and night around this question. What are the debates about this that are still raging, if any, today? Mm, well, the legacy of simplified characters is the legacy of basically what happened in the fake of the year in 1949 when communists took over China and the nationalists, which is the other party that had ruled China, retreated to Taiwan. And what happened with that is actually a story that, that became, I think it, it changed history in the sense that the nationalists were actually the first ones who proposed character simplification in the 1920s. But because of the wars and revolutions, the nationalists were not able to implement these large scale sweeping changes the way that communist China was able to. But then after 1949, both sides dug their heels in, where Taiwan, the nationals in Taiwan, insisted that they were the legitimate heirs of Chinese culture. And so they were going to hold on and keep and be the, the, the guardian of 
the traditional character form. Whereas Ming went into going through these you know, revolutions and um, trying to modernize for the masses and give them the power of literacy, they stuck with simplification. And, you know, I think both paths have their legitimate reasons. But of course, because of the politicization, it became a matter of um, cultural and question of identity. That it's, it's, in fact, still raging today. I was just going to say, to what extent is this still going on today? And is this a real battle that gets, that gets talked about? Well, as I, you know, the way I ended a book was when I was in Hanoi for this meeting of a group of computer scientists who work on actually putting Chinese into the computer. I tell you, of the two, three times that I've attended this meeting, there's a Taiwan delegate and there's a mainland Chinese delegate. And there's always a question. I mean, they're very cordial and friendly. There's always a question of how do you um, reconcile this history of traditional Chinese form and its modern transformation. So behind it, there's very much a question of the Taiwan-China conflict. And as this plays out with technology and the, the political battles that rage inside China today, is there still question about the language? Is there still discussion about Mo further modernization? Well, without that initial door that was opened by turning and modernizing Chinese language into a technology, that was actually the door that opened all other doors. So if you didn't get Chinese in the computer, you couldn't use it in texting, communicating, sending files, right? You couldn't use it to operationalize a satellite launch. You couldn't use it to translate Chinese into other languages. It was basically the threshold that China crossed in order to take advantage and perhaps be a leader in the current cutting-edge um, technology in the next wave. Is there still a push anywhere for further romanization to go back to that? Well, romanization is pretty set. Now we have pinyin, which is a standardized system. In fact, you know, since we're, we're so close to the Beijing Olympics, you might have noticed that the, the, if you were there now, you noticed that the subway station, which used to be Romanized, for instance, I don't know, if you say, let's say, you know, this, the one station, the, it actually, the, 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 it would be Romanized Chinese, but then it would be the word station in English. And now they changed the word station to zhan, which is the Chinese character for station. So essentially, now you have Chinese using Roman alphabet, but essentially re-acculturating foreigners to speak it in the Chinese style. Talk about how difficult the language is to learn. I have to tell you, I'm certainly glad that I, don't, I didn't have to learn it as a foreign <laughs> language. But, but as a native speaker, I remember growing up in Taiwan, here at the a demonstration of the difference you were asking about earlier. You know, I learned the traditional form growing up. I didn't learn it through pinging or romanization, which is actually faster. Um, I learned it, you know, we would practice writing Chinese characters each 30, 40 times every night. And, you know, I would just sit down, I put them, write them in these little square boxes. We had these square ruled notebooks rather than the, the, the lined rule that you have here. And I just remember having a minute to muscle memory, almost like, you know, it took a certain amount of athleticism to really memorize how characters are written. And that took a long time. In fact, I started, in the book I was talking about, it had grown like a thick callus in my middle finger. I'm holding my, finger, my pencil so hard every night and, you know, etching into the page, like each stroke and each line. 
When you talk to people in the technology arena, particularly in AI, as you mentioned before, to what extent does does the difficulty of the language and the reality of it, as we've been talking about, to what extent does that impact potential problems as AI develops? Well, I think the issue there moves you to think about, you know, how technology can be standardized so that anyone can use it, right? So a very important part of AI is actually used in an area called natural language processing. That is literally how the computer processes human language and content information, right? Not just crunching numbers like a calculator, but you know, processing ideas and thoughts and translation. Um, and that is actually very important for thinking about Chinese language, which has made um, immense progress in recent years in leaping forward and basically rivaling Google in its ability in what is progress in automatic translation and deep learning, et cetera. And one of the things, and we, we touched on this a little bit before, but it, but it's a remarkable number, the degree of literacy of the population is up near, what, 96, 97%? Yes. So as we talked about, you know, the literacy really just shot straight up in the 20th century because of the availability of technology and the emphasis on basically learning um, or, or it's in essence, democratizing literacy. And for China, this was critically important, which is why you see the success in the modernization of the Chinese language, what it had to do, right? The kind of, um, the, 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 the hoops it had to jump through, the bottlenecks it had to break through to get itself to the stage. Jing Tzu, the book is Kingdom of Characters, the language revolution that made China modern. Jing, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you.